The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. Hey guys, welcome to The Way BK podcast. Um, Today I'm here with Ben. Again, we're going to be talking about the book of Joshua. Uh, we're in the second half of the book of Joshua today, and um, we've been reading through the Torah, the books of history, uh, this year together, and uh, in our podcast now, we're just discussing these books. Um, so thanks for joining us. Hope the discussion is a blessing to you. As always, if there's anything we can do for you, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your feedback, anything we can do to make this uh, more fruitful and useful for you. And uh, in any way that we can help you personally, if you're here in Brooklyn, reach out to us at any time. Um, so today we're going to uh, look at the second half of the book of Joshua. And uh, <clears throat> we talked last week about um, how this is kind of a noticeable um, change in the right direction um, here in Joshua from where the Israelites have been. If you go back to like Numbers, second half of Exodus some of the big failures of God's people. Um, now Moses has died and Joshua has uh, been encouraged by the Lord to, uh, to lead the people into the promised land. And, it, and in essence, he's kind of serving as the new Moses. Um, and so they've led the people into the promised land. They've had some early victories uh, take, taking over many of the, of the cities the Lord is driving out some of the people, is driving out the people in this land because of their own wickedness and their own idolatry and immorality. Um, so Ben, why don't you start us off? What, what are some of the things that jumped out at you uh, as you're reading through Joshua, the second half of the book of Joshua? Some of this kind of uh, tedious reading, you know, listing of uh, places and land division and all that kind of stuff. But what were some of the things that jumped out to you as you were reading? I mean, that's the first thing, right? Like, this is a tough read. And there's, there's a lot of those throughout Scripture where you read it and you're like, man, I don't, this is not very fun or enjoyable or even very clearly um, meaningful. You know, at least parts of the Old, uh, the Old Testament, um, like uh, laws in Exodus or Deuteronomy, they're kind of tough to read and a little tedious, but you can kind of, like, if you squint just a little bit, you can kind of see, okay, there's some sort of principle here about morality or um, just treatment of my fellow humans or um, honoring God or whatever. Even in Leviticus, stuff about the sacrifices, you know, you have to squint a little bit harder, but you're like, okay, I see like this shows how important God is and how I need to be careful when I approach him, you know, that kind of stuff. But the trick is about this. It's like, man, I don't know who cares about how much, what the cities of Issachar were or, what the boundaries of the tribe of, of Naphtali were like, why should I care about that? Uh, And there's a lot of procedural kinds of descriptions and stuff. So to me, that's the the big thing that kind of steps out on a first read is just, this is a tough read and it's not very clearly or apparent uh, why, why we have all this detail, which uh, this is probably a good reminder that the Bible wasn't written to me first. It was written to the people it was written to first. So for the people who were living there in this land, this was very important. This was the official record of 
who lived where and who received which inheritance from God. So that's one good reminder is passages that I read and I'm like, man, why, why is this, this doesn't have any relevance for me? That's a pretty self-centered way of reading the Bible. The Bible wasn't written initially for me. It was written to the people it was written to, to teach something to all people. But that's why some parts may not be as, uh, as relevant. But to me, there's a little nugget in the middle of this. And I'll just read it and say something brief. And you can uh, kind of chime in and share what you, you, what you see here. But near the end of chapter 21, it's kind of a summation after all the um, battles have been recorded in chapters 11 and 12. And then the land is divided from chapters 13 through 21. In verse 43, it says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All of them came to pass. So the significance of this stuff, it's kind of a tough read and a little tedious, like you said. It leads up to and climaxes with this, which is a really, really significant text. And there's a lot of reasons that it's significant, but um, I'll just say in general, before you kind of dive in here and, uh, and share some thoughts, the message is God came through. God came through. Promises that seemed like fantasy, totally impossible to come true. God made them come to pass. And that's why these, this documentation, which is essentially a, a word map, you know, as opposed to a visual map, like we look at most of the book of Joshua is here's all these places listed and identified in that way. But the climax of it is God fulfilled his promise. God didn't let us down. God came through. Yeah. So that, that is kind of the, for me, the big, um, the big climax of the book in some ways is, is uh, this is what God told Abram like way, way back in Genesis 12. He said to your offspring, I will give this land. Um, and what it's been a lot of years since then. Right. I mean, they spent 400 years in Egypt. Um, you know, this is where you're talking at least 500 years later that God is finally proving himself to be faithful it's a long wait uh, for the nation of, uh, of Abraham's family. And yet um, it kind of speaks to the fact that um, this is one of the things that the, the scriptures emphasize from cover to cover, that when the Lord says something, when the Lord makes a promise, he's, he, he's going to come through with it. He, he's going to fulfill it. May not happen in our, in my, um, on my time. My time is not God's time. But ultimately the Lord is going to come through with his promises, he's going to be faithful to them. And that you see an emphasis on that in the text you just read. He had sworn to give their ancestors. So he gave it. Um, and uh, he gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of, the Lord's, uh, of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. And of course, that's a, that's a big theme throughout the Bible, is that when the Lord makes a promise, his promises do not fail. They always come true, um, just as he said they would. 
And I think this text gives us a little hint, you know, whenever we read the names of these places in Joshua chapters uh, 11 through 21, they're just funky names that we don't know how to pronounce. That's all they are to us. But for the, the original people, these were cities that were, some of which were powerful, fortified cities right. of ancient civilizations with um, stable political structures and strong armies and all these sorts of things. And so what each one of those names really represented was an insurmountable enemy that was irrelevant when compared to the power of God. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's a, it was, it would, I think it would have been actually a really emotional list for, uh, I'm theorizing, but I think this would be fair to say, there would be a really emotional list for the people of God at this time to be able to see, wow, like that's right. And the people that lived in that city, they were huge or they were powerful. I mean, remember the reason why they didn't go into the land in the first place is because they went in and saw that they were giants and these people were incredible in the land of Canaan. And yet what the book of Joshua shows is really, they, they barely even register. Like, there's not much said about most of the places where they have these victories because they defeated them in such an overwhelming and uh, devastating sort of way. The Israelites that is defeated the, the people of, of Canaan. And so it just shows um, how significant it was that God fulfilled these promises. I think sometimes I, I tend to think about the land of Canaan as this sort of sparsely populated, you know, like kind of wilderness, like beautiful wilderness that they went into and had to drive out. A couple. That wasn't it. I mean, this, this was like going into the most populated, one of the most powerful regions and, uh, and uh, addressing all of these people taking them down and God fulfilling those promises for them. I also really like another point of emphasis here in this text. Um, I guess two things I like. One is the phrase the Lord gave in 43. So the Lord gave Israel 44 and the Lord gave them. And again, at the end of 44, the Lord gave all their enemies. So there's this, uh, this picture of grace and it's said in three different ways. In 44, at the end of it, he gave all their enemies into their hand. Right? So all these people who um, were wicked, and I just, not that we're going to deep dive this, but I think there's a little comment worth, to, worth making here, that these enemies weren't just anti-Israel. They were anti-God. They were anti-human. I mean, they were really rough, rough people. Um, that did a lot of bad stuff. I mean, you see that throughout the rest of the Old Testament because the, the lingering influence of Canaanite religions led to dishonoring God, people sacrificing their children. I mean, these, these people were brutal, brutal people whom God had given literally centuries uh, before executing judgment on them. In other words, some people read this like, man, why was God playing favorites and giving Israel the land? He wasn't. He used the nation of Israel, a nation of nobodies, of former slaves, to execute justice upon people who were wicked and dishonored God and disregarded uh, human nature and uh, destroyed themselves, really. And this judgment was not some sort of favoritism toward Israel, but it was justice uh, from God on those who had done wickedly. Uh, and like you said, that justice he had taken five centuries to execute, but him giving Israel this land was a punishment upon these people who had done wrong. Yeah. And 
to the point you were making about the Giants and stuff, um, I, I have to give a shout out to where I got my name from in this uh, in this book again, because um, so in in Joshua it points out that um, the place that Caleb comes and asks for um, this is Joshua chapter fourteen um, the place that he comes and asks for uh, is known as Hebron. Um, but it used to be called Kiriath Arba after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. So actually the point being like, Hey, this is like the land of giants. Um, and that's exactly, if you, if you remember back to, uh, numbers, that's exactly what, uh, made the Israelites so afraid to go in to begin with, um, was the fact that this land is full of giants. And it was Caleb who stood up and said, Hey, the land that we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land and he'll give it to us. Um, and he said, and he's the one who said, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land because we'll devour them. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. Well, the people didn't listen to that. And most of them died in the wilderness because of it. What's crazy though, is that this old man, Caleb comes into the land at like 85 years old and is literally wiping out giants as an old man because, because the Lord is, is at work in him. It's, and it is a reminder, like you said, they're not taking this land because they're such a great nation and so strong and mighty. They're taking the land because the Lord is with them. That's what made Rahab tremble with fear. That's what made the people of Jericho so afraid. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the nation of people marching around the city with trumpets and no swords. You know, like it, was, it was the Lord who, who they'd heard about. Um, it was Yahweh God who, who they had known about. And so, um, and so, you know, it's kind of a triumphant book. Joshua is kind of a triumphant book as you see what the Lord is doing to keep his promises, how the Lord does give them all these great victories over giants when they put their trust in him. Yeah. And I think that last piece is really that you said there when they put their trust in him and Caleb kind of serves as a prototype of that in the book of Joshua. Um, so back to this text we're looking at in, at the end of chapter 21, right? So God fulfilled his promises to defeat these enemies, which going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15, he said, Hey, look, all these people, their iniquity is not yet complete. So I'm going to wait. I'm not going to give you this land right now. It's going to take centuries before these people are going to be basically wicked enough to where I feel that it's righteous to punish them. So that's what God's doing on the one hand is defeating these enemies of God and of goodness and righteousness. Uh, but the first thing that it says that God gave them that he had promised was the land in verse 43. Um, and that's pretty clear. That's what most of the thing is about. But one thing in particular, what you're saying about Caleb, he's the first one who receives his inheritance. Mm -hmm. um, he goes to Joshua and says, like, hey, you remember back when we were kids, you know, he does the whole thing of reminding just what you just reminded us from back in Numbers 13 and 14. But here's the interesting thing to me about this. Before or as Caleb is taking it, there's a point of emphasis on his trust in God that was manifested in his obedience to God. Mm -hmm. So in verse 8 of chapter 14, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So that's his memory of what happened, which is what God had said about him too. Mm -hmm. um, Verse nine. So Moses swore on that day, surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and your children forever because you have followed the Lord, my God fully. Uh, if you go down a little bit further to verse 12, he asks for 
the giant land, the, the, the hill country where the giants were living, like you already alluded to. Um, and he says that the, the Lord will be with him. And then if you skip down to verse, um, oh, and he alludes to the promise of God, I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken, which is interesting because God promised him that, but also God told them to do that. So I'm not sure whenever Caleb says, as the Lord had spoken, I don't know if he's referring to the fact, in other words, saying God promised me that I would have this, or if he saw it as God has commanded me to do this. Maybe I think, I have a feeling he meant, he thought it in both ways. That whatever God has promised us to receive, that's what God expects us to do and to take. And then uh, verse 14, you see the emphasis once again. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. So Caleb serves as a prototype of receiving the land, which all the people do throughout the rest of Joshua. But also he serves as a prototype of careful obedience, which we talked about this a good bit uh, last time in the, in the intro to Joshua, where God says, hey, I'll be with you. You'll lead the people. You'll take the land. Just follow my word. Be strong and courageous. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Do exactly as I say. And there's a lot of emphasis to that uh, in both the destruction of these wicked nations that had rebelled against God in Canaan and also to the actual dividing up of the land. There's, a, a, there's kind of this common refrain. You'll see it every couple chapters where they'll be like, they did this and this and this and gave this and this land just as the Lord commanded. Um, and, and Caleb serves as a, as a prototype, an example of that, of God fulfilling his promises to those who are loyal and faithful and obedient to him. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is, is what makes us kind of so special is, um, you know, oftentimes you're trusting and you're obeying in life and you're in the wilderness and, and you don't really get to see the fulfillment of those promises being uh, of God coming through. What, what's cool about this is, yeah, he may be 85 years old. He may have, he may have had to have 85 years in the wilderness or in slavery, but 85 years old, he gets to see the, see the fulfillment of this promise. He's just as strong. He says, um, I'm just as strong now as I was that day. Um, and, uh, and then he goes in and drives out these giants. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's kind of, it, again, it's a reminder that there is a reward in the end for those who trust and obey the Lord. There is, there is going to be this fulfillment of the promises. And of course, the same today, the Lord has made great promises to, to his people, a lot of which we don't see the fulfillment of right now. You know, many of the greatest promises that God has given us, we don't at least see the ultimate fulfillment of those things yet. Um, but we continue to trust and obey him because we believe that we're headed somewhere. We're, we're headed to a, to a promised land um, where we'll be with the Lord. Yeah. And then I think is where the third thing that this text in Joshua 21, 43 through 45 talks about God gave, you know, he gave their enemies into their hand. He gave them the land in verse 44 in the middle, it says, and the Lord gave them rest. He gave them rest on every side. And the, the concept of rest or Sabbath is one that's all throughout scripture. And it's a really neat concept that that's what God's trying to do for us is to bring us to a place of rest. Um, and your point there about God giving us something in the future, the book of Hebrews keys in on the imagery here in this period of history. And so if anybody wants to check this out, go read Hebrews chapters three and four. And the Hebrew writer draws parallels between the struggle 
of the wilderness period and the danger of giving up faith, which like many of the people did in, in uh, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. But the exhortation is we can't do that. We've been delivered out of a better slavery by Jesus. And we're kind of wandering in the wilderness these days until we come to our ultimate rest. But actually we have received a rest in Jesus. And Jesus has provided, just as God provided a rest for the Israelites in their land of promise, Christ gives us an even better rest. And so we got to stay faithful. We can't give up. We got to be people like Caleb's and Joshua's that we stay obedient to the Lord. We keep trusting in the Lord, keep being used by the Lord for his purposes. The one of the things that's interesting to me is at the end of that text, which I always thought it was like, okay, new topic whenever in, in Hebrews, right? Cause he talks about like the coming out of the land of Egypt with Moses. And that's similar to us coming out of sin with Jesus and the people need to stay faithful. We need to stay faithful. They received a rest. We receive a better rest. And at the end of Hebrews four, he talks about Jesus and he, and he says, Jesus is our great high priest. And I've always thought, Oh, cool. So he's just moving on new, new subject. But this time, especially reading through Joshua, one thing that was interesting to me was that the concept of the rest is attached to the priests quite a few times. I mean, the book kind of the first action in the book, is done by the priests in chapters three and four. When the people cross the river Jordan, we talked about this last time, it's the priests who are the first ones to step into the water to make the waters roll back. Mm-hmm. Whenever they go take down Jericho, it's the priests that are basically leading the march uh, around the, the city walls. In chapter eight, when they reinitiate or, or reestablish or update, whatever you want to call it, their covenant with God, it's of course the priests that are critical in that whole ceremony that make that happen. At the beginning of chapter 14, whenever the land is beginning to be divided, it's the priests that are dividing up the land. Uh, and then in chapter 21, the last piece of the, the inheritance that's given is to spread out the Levites, which the priests came from the Levites. Not all Levites were priests, but the priests were part of the Levitical tribes. They didn't receive an inheritance, but they were kind of just sprinkled all throughout the different tribes, which shows to me every single tribe needed that connection point to God through the Levites and through the priests. And then in chapter 22, there's a dispute where some of the tribes that were going to stay on the East side of the Jordan, it looked like maybe they were starting to violate the covenant with God already. Well, whenever the Western tribes were worried about it, they're like, man, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? Who do they send? They send a priest. And, uh, and that emphasis all throughout the book of Joshua that receiving all the good promises of God, receiving, especially this rest from God, it's crucial to have the priests to bring us close to God, to bring God's promises to fulfillment. We see that in an even bigger way in the new covenant with Jesus and with the rest that, uh, that we, we enjoy. So that's another little nugget that for me was pretty cool and pretty helpful to, to have this image of the priest helping the people to receive God's promises. And without the priests, they wouldn't have received these promises. They wouldn't have been able to cross the Jordan or take all the stuff, right? How much more is that true for us? That we need someone to give us all the good promises of God. We need someone to provide for us the path, the direction to facilitate our relationship with God. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's the great high priest who the Hebrew writer says has passed through the heavens and who sits on the throne of grace to draw us near so that we can really enter into that rest. So that's a, if people want to check out the book of Joshua in short New Testament form, Hebrews three and four is a pretty good place to go to kind of get some, some of the principles there. Yeah, that's true. And I think too, uh, you know, um, 
the priests are in Joshua in some ways are doing like the pioneering work, right? They're the ones leading the way. They're the ones kind of uh, leading them through the Red Sea, leading them into the land, leading the fights. Um, you know, the fights that they're not even really fighting, just walking around the cities and the walls fall down. Um, so, uh, which of course is the same word that the Hebrew writer uses to talk about Jesus, that he's our pioneer. We're, everything that we do as disciples, we're simply just following behind our leader. We're just, uh, we're following in, in rank or in line, following our priest um, where he leads us. Yeah. So I guess the last thing that's worth hitting, I mean, there's probably a lot more, but as far as just kind of big picture stuff, that's that's really important uh, and may help those who are trying to read this section is the Joshua's farewell in chapters 23 and 24. Um, I don't know. I thought I'd maybe just read a couple sections and maybe you could kick us off with talking about it. Uh, there's a lot here. A lot of it is Joshua talking about how his life is about to be over, how, you know, he's done his, done his thing with them. And, you know, it's kind of the end, very similar to stuff Moses said at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, but Joshua gives close attention to some of the things we talked about, especially the idea of obedience, but it's more than just obeying commandments. Uh, really what he's exhorting them to is loyalty. I'll read a couple sections in, uh, in starting in chapter 23 and then one in chapter 24, chapter 23, eight uh, or 23, six. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you are to cling to Yahweh, your God, as you've done to this day. For Yahweh has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand, for Yahweh, your God, is he who fights for you, just like he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love Yahweh, your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and if you intermarry with them so that you associate with them, and they with you, then you shall know with certainty that Yahweh your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. Maybe I should just pause, man. That's probably a pretty good place to just stop. And what, what do you see here as far as what Josh was warning them about, exhorting them with here as he kind of gets ready to, as he says, go the way of all the earth. He's about to leave and he's trying to leave them some final thoughts. Well, again, it kind of reminds you of Moses doing the same thing when he left, right? Um, you know, he's preparing the new generation. And one of the big things that stands out to me as I think about this is uh, here you've got Joshua or Yeshua, his Hebrew name, um, preparing the people to go in and continue the work of obeying the Lord, um, pleasing the Lord and staying loyal to the Lord. Um, but Joshua couldn't do that for them. Like he, he, all he could do was talk to them and tell them about what the, remind them of what the Lord had done, tell them, Hey, you know, you know who Lord is and you got to be faithful to him and you need to obey him. Ultimately though, it was, it's on them. Like whether or not they're going to choose to submit and obey or not. And of course we know how the story goes. Book of Judges is not going to be nearly as exciting as uh, as uh, 
as, as the book of Joshua, at least in terms of positive excitement, a lot of negative things, um, exciting stories, but they're mostly negative stories of failure um, by the people of God. Um, but it, it just struck me because, you know, I was reminded of this recently, um, you know, um, so in the New Testament, the hero of the Bible is also named Yeshua, Joshua, and he had disciples too. Um, and those disciples had like the greatest teacher you could possibly, I mean, imagine being under this Joshua, like it's a good guy to be leading you. It's a good guy to follow after. It's a good guy to learn from. If you're going to learn how to be faithful to the Lord, Joshua, man, that's a, that's one of the great teachers you could have. What's interesting though, is even, even, even after following a man like that, many of the people went astray. Um, and, uh, and it reminded me too of even, even the disciples who were following after Jesus, the greatest teacher humankind could ever have. One of those was Judas who went astray um, and never came back. And it's just a reminder that, um, and this kind of gets further into chapter 24 too. It's just a reminder that ultimately my relationship with God, my loyalty to God is on me. It's on me to lead, to, to, to stay faithful to God it, nobody else can do that for me. My, my church can't do that for me. Um, my friends can't do that for me. My family can't do that for me. I've got to choose to be loyal to the Lord. Um, and this is just a sobering reminder that no matter how much you may see of God's work and God's uh, action and God's faithfulness and God's fulfillment of his promises, if I don't, if I don't have a heart that loves the Lord, and if I'm not working to develop and cultivate a heart that loves the Lord, um, that won't be enough to keep me faithful to him. Yeah. Yeah. That's right on. And, and like you said, there's a call to faithfulness and that's, that's what it's all about. It's about loyalty. It's interesting. Joshua doesn't enumerate all kinds of specific points of, um, I don't know, religious code or social justice or personal morality, which he could have done. He could have been like, Hey guys, watch out. Here's the three things I think y'all are going to really struggle with in the land of Canaan he really exclusively focuses on their loyalty to God. Are you going to be loyal? Are you going to be faithful? That's what the whole thing is about. That's what, I mean, you know, chapter 24, he, he proceeds to basically remind them of their history with special emphasis on how, Hey, starting way back with your father, Abraham, it all started with him leaving the peoples around him and not in some sort of uh, ethnic superiority or ethnic cleansing or ethnic purity. So-called like people of the world think about it. that's not God's point with, don't intermarry with the nations. It was, you need to leave their gods behind and you can't intermarry with them. You can't associate with them because they'll make you turn after their gods. And that's the point. Whenever you come to chapter 24 and verse 14, Joshua says, now therefore fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and truth or uh, faithfulness. Put away the gods, which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like this, this little text, which is one that at least, and some of you are listening, you may not be Christians or you may be new to Christianity, but for people, some of you who are listening who have been Christians for a while, you've probably seen this in some Christian's house or on their 
on in some artwork or post it on their Instagram. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A lot of families use this and that's great. I think it's great. But the, the significance of this is not just a, a family slogan to put on the wall somewhere in your house or to post on your social media. It's a, it's a statement of exclusive loyalty to God and yeah. nothing else and no one else. And the people go on, they got it because they respond in verse 16, far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods for Yahweh. Our God is the one who brought us up and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs and preserved us all the way in which we went. And among all the peoples through whose midst we've passed, Yahweh drove out before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve Yahweh for he is our God. They got it. Like that's what the whole thing is about. And really that's what all the good, all the fulfillment of God's promises, which we talked about earlier, that 21, uh, chapter 21, 43 through 45, God gave them uh, the land. God gave them their enemies. God gave them rest. All that stuff should compel them to be exclusively loyal to God. That's the whole point. God is gracious to draw us in. And that's, as you pointed out with Jesus, that's what the sacrifice of Christ was. It was God fulfilling all of his good promises, even more than the ones he fulfilled to Israel, but his good promises to the world. And the call is to forsake every other God, every other thing we worship, everything that we trust, everything that we look to, everything that we invest ourselves in. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me worship me, serve me, trust me only. Yeah. And I'll just say too, I mean, this only makes sense. Like the fact, the fact that God wants exclusive loyalty, it only makes sense. If you've ever been in a relationship, you should understand this, right? I mean, God is a jealous God because, uh, when you make this kind of investment into somebody, um, when you risk your life to save somebody, when you, when you give up your only son, you know, to bring about, to, to make a people, um, then it makes sense that, that, that you would want some sort of exclusive loyalty in return. Um, and that's, that's, that's what the Lord desires from people. God is a jealous God, and he demands that those whom he has redeemed and those whom he has purified for his own possession, he demands that, 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 uh, that his people show him loyalty and, and love in return. Also, I think this is why, so like the rest of the Bible is going to be, um, or the rest of the Old Testament, at least, the, the, the Torah, the Tanakh, is going to be kind of a, um, what happens when you disobey this commandment. Like the, the idolatry um, is the sin of the Old Testament that's on every page. It's interesting to me, though, that um, I'm reading right now Hosea, and, and um, sometimes in the Bible, Jose is a good example of this, um, idolatry is described as harlotry or adultery. And, and, and I think this helps us to understand why. Um, because really, when I, when I turn away from God to serve other gods, what I'm doing is I'm cheating on God. I, I'm, I'm, I'm forsaking that covenant relationship that I have with the Lord. And abandoning that for other lovers, uh, and that's exactly the way um, God describes it in Hosea. So you know, just appreciating who God is and what God has done ought to help us to understand why the Lord wants from us in return this exclusive loyalty to Him. Yeah, and I think there's two angles to that. One is 
God deserves it. And he does. He's done so much good for us. He deserves our absolute and total loyalty. The other angle is for us. Your example of the book of Hosea, which is down the line, but it's this issue exactly, uh, of loyalty to God, not turning to other false gods and that sort of thing. The life of a harlot versus the life of a loved bride couldn't be further apart. Yeah. To have to go out there every day and to just work all the time to try to survive. I mean, that's what prostitutes, harlots do. And sometimes we think they're just totally uh, horrible people who enjoy, you know, and, and maybe some people who work as prostitutes, they, they work in that industry because they enjoy just having a bunch of sex. That may be it. But most of the time it's people trying to survive and they think it's the only way they can. You know, I've got to do this and I've got in order to make enough money to keep myself safe or to provide for myself or whatever. It's a really tragic existence and it's demeaning and it's diminishing and it's soul crushing and psychologically devastating and physically horrifying and, and dangerous and all these things. And that's what it's like to forsake God. You do these things thinking that you'll provide for yourself by pursuing all these different lovers or all these different gods or all these different things of the world. And all it does is destroy you in the end. But a bride with a good husband, at least is someone who's just filled with grace all the time, provided for loved, cared for, adored, exalted, all the things that every human being would want. And God's saying, that's what I've offered you. That's that line where it says, God, not a word of all the good promises that God made failed. They all came to pass. God has been good. All this stuff about inheriting the land, it's about the grace of God. And staying loyal to God is the only way to receive that grace. Just like a bride staying loyal to her husband is really the only way to enjoy the grace of, of a good husband. And it's only when she abandons him and goes and lives a life of harlotry that she sacrifices herself and all the grace that she could have received from her husband. That's what, you know, earlier I alluded to how the book of Hebrews attaches Jesus to giving the ultimate rest to us. You know, he's the ultimate high priest. This is the line in Hebrews 4 that concludes that. Hebrews 4 and verse uh, 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. In other words, don't turn to the gods of the world. Don't turn to the nations. Don't turn inward. Don't turn to any other source in your time of need. Stay loyal to God. And for us, that means stay loyal to God through Jesus Christ so that we'll receive the grace that's offered to us and we won't be destroyed by a life of harlotry and betrayal and, uh, and faithlessness. And that's the appeal of the book of Joshua. Like you said, I don't know, tragically, uh, I hate to be a downer, but tragically, that's not the way it's going to go. We're going to see immediately the people of Israel don't, that, don't do that. But this book does show that if you stay loyal to God, your life will be a life filled with grace. And that should be a, an appeal to us to hold more tightly than ever uh, to Jesus Christ so we can enjoy that grace. Amen. That's good stuff. Appreciate you guys uh, joining us today. Hope this has been helpful for you. Hope it encourages you to dig in deep to the book of Joshua and, uh, and benefit from it.
as always, if there's anything we can do for you, reach out to us. Hope these are helpful to you. And uh, we pray the Lord's blessing upon you right now. May the Lord bless you and keep you all and give you peace. Thanks, guys. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.